Thank you, worship team. I pray that you thought through those words as we sung them, glorious truths in those, contained in those verses. Uh, my job today is to introduce our guest speaker. And uh, in God's providence and his sovereignty, um, we've been working our way through First Peter, and I've been telling you how I believe First Peter is a field manual for the Christian life, especially when that Christian life includes suffering, as it often or always does. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to tell you today that Rick Thomas is perfect, because that's not true. I am here to tell you today that he is a man who has undergone intense suffering in his life. If you go to his website and listen to his testimony, he will... He will lay that out for you. He's, under, he's gone through intense suffering in his life and is one of the rare breeds of people that you'll find that has come out the other end, not bitter, but committed even more to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ more and more and driving the truth of the gospel into, folks, into people's lives through uh, biblical counseling and, and just good, solid biblical training. So with all that being said, please welcome... Our speaker for this morning, Brother Rick Thomas. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Y'all sitting halfway back. <laughs> okay, I'll just talk louder. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be here this uh, weekend. I've been speaking with different folks uh, Friday night and all day yesterday, and it's been really fun. It's been good to meet uh, your people. And uh, so anyway, uh, Scott, uh, thank you for allowing me to be here and to stand in the pulpit and to share uh, your word. I brought my life coach with me. Uh, She's also my primary disciple maker. She doubles as a wife as well. Uh, her name is Lucia, and she's right here. Uh, she is the one who um, practically, <clears throat> this is my outline uh, this morning, by the way. She's the one who practically considers me. She's the one who practically confronts me. And she's the one who practically comforts me the most. And uh, she is a mercy uh, sent uh, by, Lord, by the Lord uh, into my life uh, to help me uh, to be a better Christian. And uh, so she's here. You can ask her how it's been going if you want. Uh, she'll be glad to talk with you. I have been speaking this week. We're from Greenville, South Carolina, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know. And uh, for those of you who need translation work on some of the things that I say, uh, Lucia is from Erie, Pennsylvania, so she's, she's like you all. And so you can speak to her. She's She'll be able to translate if you, if you northerners get stuck on anything that this country boy says. But anyway, uh, I've been talking about uh, biblical counseling this weekend. And so I was curious, some of the biblical counselors showed up this weekend, but I knew that everyone couldn't because of commitments and priorities, and that's fine. I get that. We all, we all have those in our lives, and we can't do everything. But I knew that more of you would be here today, and so I was curious 
uh, how many of you are, and you can just lift your hand, that's fine, to let me know, but how many of you are uh, biblical counselors? And if you would lift your hand, again, I'm not throwing shame on anyone, okay? So just want to get a, okay, so that's, that's good. All right, so my second question is, and I don't want you to raise your hand on this one because, again, I'm not here to draw attention unnecessarily to anyone, but my second question, I want you to answer this in your mind. How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you are Christians? And so uh, ponder that thought in your mind. How many of you have been regenerated by the power of the gospel, that God imposed himself in your life, he regenerated you, you have been made alive in Christ, and you are what we call born again. And so just in your mind, how many of you are a Christian? Now, I'm going to go ahead and speculate that more of you would raise your hand on my second question than you did on my first question. And for those of you who did not raise your hand on the first question and you would raise your hand on the second question, we need to have a talk because there is a deficiency in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Everybody that mentally raised their hand on the second question is a biblical counselor. There are no other options. Now, I would even go further to say that everybody in this room, regardless of how you answer that question, is a counselor. We counsel every day of our lives. You counseled this morning. You counsel each other. Let me give you some counseling illustrations. The angry father to the child is counseling that child. That is counsel. It's not biblical counsel, but it is counsel. You're counseling that child that I don't like you and you're not important to me. The silent parent that doesn't speak to their child is counseling. They are saying that, again, you're not important and I diminish you. That is counsel. There's two kinds of counsel in this world. The two kinds came in Genesis 3-6. God's counsel was in Genesis 1 and 2, and it continues on. The Satan's counsel began in Genesis 3-6, where there's another kind of counsel. But we all have the, the option as to whether we're going to counsel one another as to what kind of counseling we're going to provide, biblical counseling or unbiblical counseling. But everybody is a counselor. And it's not just by the words that we use, it's by the body language that we, we put off, it's by the rolling of our eyes, it's by our dismissiveness, we are providing counsel to each other, we are making declarative statements of what we think about each other by the attitudes that we have, the words that we use, the things that we say. And so what I hope that would happen this weekend, I would hope that what would happen this morning is that... One, that everybody, would, everybody who is a Christian would recognize that, yes, I am a biblical counselor, and I do understand that there is stratifications when it comes to biblical counseling. I am not anticipating that everybody in this room can counsel a complex sexual abuse situation. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting at a very bare minimal level that we're all biblical counselors, or maybe you would prefer the word disciple-maker, those words are synonyms. But I hope that through the message this morning that the Lord would be so kind to, to re-envision me, to re-encourage me, 
uh, to encourage you all as well that we have a responsibility and there's no other option if we name the name of Christ that we want to make our counsel to one another biblical so that we can encourage one another. And this is the, the point of the text this morning. The text is uh, Hebrews chapter number 10. I'll be looking at verses 19 through uh, 25 today. That clock has a glare on it, Scott, so I'll try to pay attention. There's my excuse. I think I can see the little hand. I understand. I mean, living in relationship with one another means, it means that you're going to be disappointed with one another. It is impossible to live with another human being and not be disappointed by that human being. I tell people in in marriage counseling that when you get married, or in premarital counseling, when you get married, that the only kind of can that you can select from the grocery shelf is from the dinged and dented section of the shelf. The only kind of person that you can marry is a dinged and dented kind of person, that we are fallen and, and broken people. And when you marry a dinged and dented kind of person, you're probably going to be disappointed when you get the can home. It's not what you thought. As I shared with the group last night, that the definition of dating is the artificial season where two people fake each other out until they get married. They put their best foot forward, and then they get married, and then when they bring that sinner home, and now you have two sinners in this box, well, that is a setup for disappointment. And Lucia and I have disappointed each other many times in our 24 years of marriage. And so because that is a given, when two Adamic people come together, we have to learn how to biblically counsel one another. We have to learn how to disciple one another, to come alongside one another, which is the meaning of this text here, because honestly, relational disappointment happens to all of us, not just in our marriages, not just in our families. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what you do. At some point, at some time, you're going to experience conflict. Conflict will always be part of your lives. The only way to successfully, and I put successfully in quotation marks, to stay away from conflict is to remove yourself, to isolate yourself from everyone. But then what you will find when you isolate yourself from everyone, you're stuck with you. When I, go, I was talking to, we've been staying with Vic and Peggy this week. They've been gracious hosts to us living out on the farm with Rusty, their horse. If you haven't met Rusty, he's actually a dog, uh, but he is huge. And his, as the old Hank Williams song said, my bucket got a hole in it. Rusty's love bucket has a hole in it. This dog cannot be loved enough. <laughs> and I have petted him continuously for three days now, and it's just never enough. <laughs> but I love Rusty, and it was hard. Breaking up is hard to do. And when I left this morning, it was sad to see that mutt uh, dog uh, looking at me with those sad 
those sad eyes. I'm not even sure what I, my point was. <laughs> but when you isolate from one another, I did have a point, and it'll come around in a minute. It won't make sense when I insert it five minutes later, but at least you'll know what I'm talking about. But when you isolate yourself, even from other people, you have this war within you, and that war just conflicts. And, oh, I, this is what I was telling Vic, that I am an introvert by heart. I'm a shy person. Uh, I'm not a talker. Uh, this is work for me. You are work for me. It's, Lucia, is, uh, Lucia, it's not work for her to do this. She has the gift of communication. I have the gift of silence. So I, and I told Vic, I had rather sit in a corner of a room with a book for the rest of my life. That would be my preferred life. But even doing that, I would find that there is conflict, uh, conflict within my own soul. And so some people have found outs, a way to get away from conflict as successfully as they can. It's called social media. Social media allows you to go to cyberspace where you can have a false intimacy. It's a partial intimacy, which makes it a false intimacy, where you can interact with other people, but it, they are risk-free relationships because if they offend you, you can just unfriend them just like that. It is safe. And so you can have... you can. Uh, delude yourself, de deceive yourself into thinking that you're having relationships because I spend my days on Facebook or other social media flat, uh, platforms having community and is trying to answer the question and trying to solve the desire that we have to have community with one another, but we're so disappointed or maybe been hurt so often that we don't want to do it within real life relationships. And so social media gives us elements of intimacy, but it's really not the real thing. Even counseling, biblical counseling is a context for false intimacy in a biblical counseling context. I've been doing that for a quarter of a century. Many people I've counseled have no idea how many, but I know that that is an artificial context for a relationship to happen because the person that I'm talking to is putting their best foot forward even in a counseling session. And so that is not the best way to resolve conflict. It is a way, but most definitely not the best. I mean, the unwilling husband will, will come to a counseling session as a last-ditch effort for damage control uh, because his wife is, is imploring him to do so, and he will do that. He will commit to that, but that is not the best way to resolve marital conflict. It's a help, but it's not the best way. The often hurt person is afraid of letting people into their world, so they create that distance in cyberspace. There are elements of intimacy and help in these contexts like cyberspace and, and counseling, but intimacy is mostly superficial and distant. The limitations circumvent up close, practical, help, that is essential in order to do soul care with one another. Things like transparency and honesty and vulnerability and unmasked truth are not accessible in those contexts. I shared with the group this weekend that 
All of us have a representative, a PR person, a public relations person. That person represents us. It is a carefully edited version of ourselves that we trot out into the public space, hoping that people will like that person, the person that we have created, this persona, this public relations person, more than the real person that we know ourselves to be. We're Adamic creatures. We put on our fig leaves and we come to our church meetings like this, peering through our fig leaves, hoping that our shame and our guilt and our frustrations will not be exposed. My hope is through this, this, this morning that if, if that is the case with, with anyone in this room, that the Lord would penetrate those fig leaves. He would put a pin in that PR person, your public representative, and, and, and motivate and encourage you and encourage me to, to be more real with each other so that we can truly biblically counsel each other and disciple each other so that we can continue to grow up in Christ, which brings us to our text in Hebrews 10. The text is in two parts, and so I want to just look briefly, and the brief look at the first part does not in any way communicate uh, the lack of importance. In fact, I would say that the first part of this text, which is verses 19 through 23, is the most important part of this text, even though I will only talk about it briefly. The Hebrew writer says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence let your eye rest on that word confidence. This is an, it, it is an important word. Since we have confidence, let me say it this way. Therefore, Delaware Bible Church, because, we, because you have confidence, because you have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's why you have confidence, because of the shedding of the blood of Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, you are a confident person. And you can live in a new and living way that he opened up through the curtain. In Exodus 25, verse number 8 is the beginning where God told Moses to build a tabernacle in the wilderness to gather what they need to build it. They built that tabernacle in the wilderness. And there was a curtain that separated the, whole, the most holy place, the place where no one can go but the high priest. But now that curtain has been rent it has been divided and now you can now you and me we can go behind that curtain as blood-bought believers with confidence and we can stand before God therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain the veil actually that is through his flesh and since we have a great high priest, his name is Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near. With a true heart, full assurance of faith, another confident sounding word. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, pure water. Let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering, another confident word, full assurance of faith without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. That's like the bold little four year old standing next to his daddy. 
He is confident, full of faith, because my daddy is there. And this is who we are as children of God. The Bible calls us to live differently from superficial counseling sessions or, or differently from cyber relationships. The Bible calls us to be intentionally intrusive in people's lives, getting beyond the public representative so that Jesus Christ can transform us. And though you have all the resources you, that you need for life and godliness, there can still be a timidity about approaching those things, approaching other people, benefiting from the communal discipleship experience with other people to where we don't enjoy biblical, relational, in-depth experiences with each other. And so false intimacy... Preferring these other type of relationships, whether it's cyberspace or continuing to live in that carefully crafted, edited version of myself, it begs the question, where do you begin to become a better relationship builder within God's family? Well, verses 19 through 23 is the beginning of that answer. In order to have a great relationship with another human being, you have to have a great relationship with Jesus. You see, you and I, we connect our ability to persevere with others directly to our relationship with God and how we appropriate that relationship with God into our lives. A transformative relationship with the Lord will give you all you need to interact with any person regardless of how challenging they may be. If you try to interact with another person, a dent and dinged person, without a vibrant relationship with God, it, it won't go well forever. My wife needs a robust relationship with the Lord to live with me, to put it plainly. Without a robust relationship with God, it would be very difficult to live with me because I am a sinner saved by grace. That's why these verses that I just went through, even so briefly, 19 through 23, are the most crucial. Because so often what we try to do is to build a relationship horizontally when we haven't really built the relationship substantially between ourselves and the Lord. And so the Hebrew writer says, hey, we have confidence because of what Christ did, that we, are, we have full assurance of faith, that we don't have to waver. And so when you're in a relationship that is difficult, you have confidence. You are fully assured. You do not waver because he is faithful who has promised he will sustain you. And as we roll out of those verses, we roll into verses 24 and 25, a key passage in understanding how to have strong relationships begins in 19 through 23, but then practically speaking, the 
writer talks about how a right kind of life with Christ motivates and empowers you to have a correct life with others. Let me give you a, a synopsis of verses 19 through 23, which sound like this. Harmonic living with others is proportional to your appropriation of Christ into your life. If you appropriately, if you are appropriately applying the gospel into your life, you will be ready to practically live it out in community, which is the second part of this passage, how to live well with others. And so my outline in verses 24 and 25 is practically considering, practically confronting, practically comforting. And we'll see it in the text here. Verse number 24. The writer goes on to say, now that you, you realize you're established and confident and fully assured relationship in God because he is faithful who promised, now that you have that, let us consider. Practically considering. Let us consider how to stir up, that's the second point, practically confronting. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, practically comforting. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Before you can have a right relationship with another person, you must first consider the other person, practically considering. The word consider in this text means to be a student of the other person. Your goal with the other person, whether it is your spouse, your child, your parent, your friend, your pastor, your small group leader, your neighbor, your goal is to exegete them, to know them well. Exegesis, as you know, is a Bible word for studying the Bible. It's like raking leaves. You're just you raking and raking and raking to get to the bottom of it all. When you exegete a passage of Scripture, you're just raking and raking until you get to the bottom of it all. And so in order to help a person, to be a friend to a person, you have to consider them. You put them under the microscope. You study them. You want to spend time thinking about them before you talk to them. I shared with the group last night that you see a beautiful example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The first nine verses of 1 Corinthians is Paul explaining to those people that he has spent time considering them. He has been praying for them. He has been talking to God about them. He has been pondering them before he ever spoke to them. He began speaking to them in verse number 10. But he wants them to know that I have been practically considering you. And he spends nine verses explaining that. All good Christian disciples know and practice this method of relationship building. Even while talking or while the other person is talking, 
You are actively listening to them. You're trying to hear what they are saying. You're trying to hear what they are not saying. You're looking at them in a micro way, and you're also thinking in a macro way. And you're talking to God at the same time. Dear Lord, help me to understand this person. I want to hear them well. I want to consider them. I want to be a good student of them. I want to understand them. You are actively, actively listening. You are discerning their presuppositions, their worldviews, their categories, their interpretive grid, and their shaping influences, what has made them to be who they are. This was not easy for my wife when we first got married. We dated for three years, and it was glorious. Every day was a reboot. I would send her home to her parents, and we'd start fresh in the morning, and it was glorious. I love dating. want to date forever. Then I brought her home. And then it was two sinners in a box, and now it's like we can't escape from this box. And she was seeing things that she had never seen before. As I said last night, she was smelling things that she had never smelled before either. It's like, what have I gotten myself into? So if she's going to come alongside and consider me, or to help me rather, she has to practically consider me. She has to know who I am, what makes me tick. Why did I say it that way? She's never said it that way in her entire life. Or said it that loud in her entire life. She said, why are you yelling? No, I'm not yelling. This is how we talk. This is how I was raised. We talk this way. Five boys. I'm just communicating. What are y'all doing over there? <laughs> is that an amen? <laughs> That's a hearty amen for these two ladies. Y'all can, we'll, we'll inquire later. I'm just illustrating my point. I'm practically considering these two ladies over here. I'm just trying to understand because I want to do the rest of this stuff I'll talk about later. But see, that's, that's a good illustration. That's what I'm talking about. And so Lucia's trying to figure out what in the world. But as she began to understand my interpretive grid, my shaping influences, my worldview, my categories, she began to see that I am not her. She is not me, that we are two different people. And she has to be like Christ, the first missionary who came from his place to our place to take on the form of flesh, to be a sympathizing savior. And so Lucia, she imitates Christ in my life. Now she's entering into my world, taking on flesh, so to speak, learning me so that she can help me to be a better person. The question here is, a healthy Christian community is always considering each other. God has called you and us to consider how to help one another to have a better relationship with Christ. And so here are a few application questions, three specifically on this point. By the way, if you would like a full transcript of this message, if you will email Aaron Hedges, he does not know this, but he has this transcript in his inbox right now. And if you email him, he will send this to you word for word, but you're welcome to take notes too. The question is, do you have people in your life who think about you? Do you have anyone in your life who considers you that way exegetically? 
Number two, do you have people in your life who have permitted you to speak into their lives? Are you doing life with other individuals who are committed to this kind of one anothering? Are you, are, you, are, do you, are you doing life with individuals who are committed to this kind of one anothering? I want to go back to question number two. Do you have people in your life who have permitted you to speak into their lives? I think this is a pre-conversation that some of us would need to have with our friends. And the conversation could go like this. I want you to speak into my life. I am not satisfied with superficial relationships. I am tired of living in a, a non-transparent community. I am tired of always being a public representative with you. And so I want you to speak to the real person of me. And I give you permission to do that. Let's just do away with this PR nonsense that's going on. Let's get behind the fig leaves and have a real conversation. Maybe that is the pre-conversation that you have to have so that you can enter into what I am suggesting here, which is right out of the text of what the Hebrew writer is suggesting. Number two, practically, practically confronting. You can translate the words stir up, let us stir up, let us consider, let us, let us exegete one another to learn one another so well so we can stir them up to loving good works. You can translate this word stir up as spur, which you will actually see in your King James Bible. No, that doesn't sound good. Love to King James. Spur. I, I said sound good, not feel good. Let us spur, let us provoke, let us even irritate one another. Any of those words will work for stir up, to spur, to provoke, to irritate. Now, let me say, let me modify irritate, biblically irritate, okay? <laughs> some, some spouses may look at others, well, I think I got that one down. Uh, that's why I wanted to modify it. And so I was kind of biblically irritating these two ladies over here. I was considering them, and then I just got up in their business, kind of public-like, and just it's kind of provoking over here. I want to get a T-shirt that says, I'm an irritant. And on the back, it should say, biblically irritant. And so you husbands, do not, do not misquote what I'm suggesting here. Or children. Mama, the preacher said we should irritate you. <laughs> Mama says, son, he said, biblically irritate. Go clean your room. Now she's irritating him biblically. According to the Hebrew writer's context, the idea of irritating is not a sinful one. It is a command that means you are to be intentionally intrusive into people's lives. For example, you have people around you who are not allowed to disagree with you. If you have those people who can't disagree with you, then you will not grow. God biblically irritated us when he first came into our lives. He intruded in our lives. And it's like, what? You got to be kidding me. You want me to trust you, to follow you, to walk away from the life that I know. 
You want me to be a Christian, to carry a cross, die to myself. Are you kidding me? That is biblical irritation, but we are glad that God would spur us on, that he would provoke us, that he would biblically irritate us because he loves us so much. If we are too touchy, too insecure, too self-important, too image conscious, too self-righteous, then we're heading towards spiritual death. The sins that can most easily destroy us are the ones that we cannot see. The most dangerous part of our sin problem is being blind to our own blindness. The deceitfulness of sin causes us to minimize, to rationalize, to justify, even not admit our sin. The mark of a mature Christian community is people who do not want to be blind to their sins. This kind of authenticity requires friends who are willing to go below the surface of our lives to spur one another on. And the only way you can do that, in fact, the only way you should do that is because you have spent time practically considering them so that you know what you're talking about when you are irritated irritating them biblically. I have some application questions here. I will move from them. Aaron has them. You can email them, but due to time. Point number three, practically comforting. The Greek word for comforting here is parakaleo, which means to come alongside another person. Coming alongside another person is a critical thought in this text. While you are considering, while you are confronting, while you are correcting an individual in the context of spurring them on to loving good works, they must know that you are for them. The for them aspect of the gospel, I say that as in Romans 8.31, if God is for you, who can be against you? We know that because God is for us, we can be confident. We can move forward in faith because if God is for you, who can be against you? And as Paul continues to illustrate in the remaining part of Romans 8. 31 and following, well, we want to be for other people, the for them aspect of the gospel. It is, it is at the heart of the gospel, and it is essential in any confronting, irritating relationship. That other person must know that you are for them. It is unwise, it is unbiblical, it is unkind to correct any person that you are not for. It doesn't mean that you're for their sin. You can be for a person, but not be for their sin. And if we don't get this right, then the heart and the delivery of what we say when we are biblically irritating, confronting someone, it may come across more punitive than redemptive. The essential practice in bringing restorative care, of course, is prayer. If you have not spent time praying for and praying about the person that you are going to biblically irritate, then your correction may have a sinful edge to it. In such cases, your care will come across as harsh or unkind. If you haven't spent time before the Father bringing the annoying people in your life to Him while pleading with Him, to adjust your attitude, to adjust your thoughts, to adjust your words and your actions, you will not build them up, but you will tear them down. 
And so we want to be practically considering, practically confronting, and practically comforting. Which reminds me of the song, Lord, I need thee. I need thee every hour. I cannot do this without you, which is the point of verses 19 through 23. Let us have confidence. And the more and the better that we appropriate Christ in our life, the more sturdy we will be as we interact with other fallen beings who are very similar to us. You cannot draw near to God on your own. You can do a lot of things by yourself, but sanctification is not one of them. Sanctification is a community event. There's too many one another's in the New Testament that would support this. This is one of them. Let us consider how we can stir up one another. Sanctification doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in community. The author of Hebrews here knew the dire straits of his readers. And that is why he is using this strong language here to motivate them to love and good works. People were murdering them. They had a not-so-good president they had not-so-good senators. They had not-so-good House of Representatives. They had a not-so-good culture. They had a not-so-good many people who were hostile toward Christianity and Christian values. These people were in dire straits. They were mandating masks. There were pandemics. The culture was splitting apart. It is red and blue and getting wider and wider. The Hebrew writer was talking to people who were under persecution, and that is why his language was so strong. What we need today is not divisiveness in the church. We need one another coming together, speaking to one another, considering one another, confronting one another, comforting one another, because the world is going to hell. And this is what the Hebrew writer is saying to these people, and that's why he's using this language here. His twofold aim in this text was to elevate the gospel's power, 19 through 23, while giving them practical instruction on how to mobilize as a community to strengthen one another. Please excuse me, I'm having a moment. If you are not, and the reason this is so emotional to me is because this is where I spend my life. I spend my life on the underbelly of Christianity, doing things that most Christians don't do. I live in the dark side of Christianity, not in the upper side where everybody's a public representative. No, I live in the harshness and the unkindness and the meanness. That is where I've spent the last 25 years, where we are tearing each other apart, trying to bring people together. That's why it's so important to me. That's what I see in this text of why it's so important to the Hebrew writer. If you are not accessing the community of faith while seeking to have that community know you in the way that you need to be known, your sanctification is in danger of shipwrecking. There is no biblical argument otherwise. We all have, been, we all have experienced hurt by people especially other Christians. 
Yes, we do shoot our own. But this does not negate this passage's truth. We need each other. We must immerse ourselves in the body of Christ. I need people in my life who are willing to love me enough to bring corrective care to me. I'm aware they will love me imperfectly. They will consider me imperfectly. They will confront me imperfectly. They will comfort me imperfectly. But I have no other choice. My wife has considered me imperfectly. She's confronted me imperfectly. She has comforted me imperfectly. And I've done the same for her. But we need each other. And we need a body of Christ surrounding us. I can receive imperfect care if they have demonstrated that they are on my side through their comforting encouragement. I'm not asking my friends to agree with me, turn a blind eye to my sin, or coddle me. I don't want those friends. Those aren't friends. That's Facebook or something else, people who can't know you or people who don't want to know you. I am asking them to love God enough, verses 19 through 23, to be motivated enough to be used by him enough to speak into my life, especially in areas where I am self-deceived. There is safety in this kind of community, and we must not be satisfied until we find it. Thank you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these strong words that you motivated the Hebrew writer to write. Thank you for the courage of the writer to speak with such clarity to a people who were under the weight of a world that was persecuting them, murdering them, putting them on crosses, Thank you that he did not hold back in the severity of the situation and the necessity of, of what needed to be communicated. And thank you that, dear God, that you have preserved this word for us today as we are, it seems as though we are on the precipice of a similar kind of journey in a country that we seem to not know anymore. Lord, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts that we will not be satisfied until we are living in a practically considering, practically confronting, practically comforting local body here at Delaware Bible. Teach us to get to that place and give us a sense of dissatisfaction, holy dissatisfaction, until we get there. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you, my Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to these wonderful people. Amen. Thank you.